invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles uh, to the New Testament book of Galatians. Uh, We come today to Galatians chapter 3, and our text is going to be verses 10 through 14. If you are using a pew Bible, you can find this on page 973 of your pew Bible. Galatians chapter 3 and verses 10 through 14. You will recall that the great theme of the book of Galatians is the truth of the gospel. What is the good news that is given through Jesus Christ, how people might be saved. And Paul is very interested in this book in defending the true gospel against those who would pervert it or who would destroy the message of of salvation through uh, Jesus Christ. Paul has uh, approached uh, this matter in a number of ways. Uh, In chapters 1 and 2, primarily, he has defended his own apostleship, that as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he authoritatively teaches what it is that this gospel of Jesus Christ is. And now in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is engaging in a kind of theological argument. Uh, In verses 1 through 5, there was an argument from the Galatians' own experience. How was it that they first received the Holy Spirit, and were saved. They ought to continue in the way that they began. Last week, in verses 6 through 9, we saw an argument from the Old Testament, and especially Abraham. How was Abraham himself made right with God? How was he justified? And we saw that the clear testimony of the Bible is that Abraham was justified by faith. But we come now to Galatians 3, 10 through 14. And in these verses especially, we will notice something about the role of the law. Is the law able to save us? Let's hear now from God's word. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This ends this reading in God's uh, word. Let's now come once again before the Lord in prayer. Uh, O Lord, our God, we thank you for these extraordinary words that we read today out of Galatians 3. Uh, Words that tell us how we are not saved and words that tell us how we 
are saved. And we pray, God, for ears today to hear what it is that your word teaches. We pray for everyone here that by your spirit their minds would be captivated by this truth. And Lord, that it would make a difference in the way that we uh, daily live. We do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Well, in a recent study by uh, George Barna, uh, he asked um, professing Christians, those who would claim to be Christians, uh, this question. If a person is generally good, or does enough good things for others during their life, will they earn a place in heaven? Out of those who said that they were Christians, 46% said that that statement is true. Now, that's the very thing that the Apostle Paul is going to be addressing in this passage today. That statement is not true at all. In fact, that's the very thing that Paul is arguing against in the book of Galatians and saying that anything which says that it is a matter of our doing rather than Christ's doing as a way of salvation is a distortion of the gospel of grace. And so I want each one of you to be able to say with a heart Uh, full of faith and of understanding that that statement is not true and to be able to see from Galatians 3 today uh, why it is not. So let's jump right into this passage. We're going to study it under four different headings as we work our way through it uh, kind of consecutively. First of all, we are going to see the way of the law in verse 10. Then secondly, in verses 11 and 12, the way of faith. Then in verse 13, redemption through the cross. And then lastly, in verse 14, Christ's crowning gift. The way of life, the way of faith, or excuse me, the way of the law, the way of faith. Redemption through the cross and Christ's crowning gift. First of all, this passage has something to say to us about the way of the law. Look with me at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law. Let me just pause there for a second to say that that's the very thing about which George Barna was asking in that question. Is a person, if a person is generally good or does enough good things for others during their life, will they earn a place in heaven? Are we those who are relying on works of the law? That is, the good things that we do. Following the commandments of God or just seeking to be a nice person. Relying on the works of the law. What is true of us if we are relying on the works of the law in order to gain favor with God? Well, this passage says all who do that are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law 
to do them. Now, that's a quotation of the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26, uh, combined kind of a little bit with Deuteronomy 28 and verse 1. Uh, But here, Paul is establishing that it is the teaching of the Old Testament self about the law of God that perfect and entire obedience is required if we would uh, be those uh, who are righteous through the law. Uh, You'll notice that. He speaks here, first of all, of the breadth of the law, that it is all things that are written in the book of the law that we must keep. And so if you were to be a law keeper, being righteous through the law, well, you can't be picking and choosing which commands you want to keep, not selecting some of them and leaving aside others and saying, well, overall, I'm doing pretty good on balance. But rather, the teaching is that every provision of the law, each and every jot and tittle is to be performed if we are to be righteous through the law. But then we see not only the breadth of this law, we see the length of it as well. It's because it says there that cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things uh, written in the book of the law and uh, do them. And that idea of doing them there is the idea of doing them continually, that we are to be those who, it says, abide by all things written. So to abide by these things and to do them is not just to do them for a little while and then to lapse and then to try to do them again. The Lord says, no, just occasionally making tries at the law of God, that's not good enough. But Rather, there is to be a length to our obedience. That is, it is to be happening continually. But then as well, there is a depth to the law also. Okay? It says uh, there that cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Well, what does it mean to abide in these things? What does it mean to do the law? Well, the Lord Jesus himself makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he, that to do the law is not merely to follow the outward provision of the law, but rather to inwardly have a heart that corresponds to it. It's what what theologians call the spirituality of the law. That the law impacts not just our behavior, but our hearts. Remember what Paul said in the book of Romans in chapter 7, and he he thought he himself was doing pretty good when it came to law-keeping until he ran into that 10th commandment that said, do not covet. He thought, oh, that touches my heart. I'm not a law-keeper at all. And in fact, all of the commands touch our heart. Heart. The Lord Jesus says we're not just to not lust. Uh, uh, at, 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 uh, it's not just a committing of a sexual uh, uh, immorality, but we're not even to lust at a woman. Okay, that we are uh, not simply to not murder, but we are not to hate our brother from the heart. And so on and so forth. So there's a heart o- obedience. And so we see here that the law's requirement is great indeed. And when we begin to think of the law in this way, we realize that not one of us can be righteous through the law. That there is not one of us who has kept the law in its breadth, all the commands, in its length, with no lapses, in its depth, that is, to our very heart. But rather, we live in a world in which men and women, boys and girls, continually break 
the law of God. And that just is one of those facts that should be self-evident as we look at the world around us, right? What do we see when we look at the world around us? We see nations uh, that are at war with one another. We see the breakdown of families. We see murder and theft and lying that abounds. We uh, see sexual immorality uh, in this hyper-sexualized culture in which we uh, live. We see the disrespect of God placed authority. And friends, we go on and on. Wherever we look in the world around us, we see a world that is marked by sin and rebellion against God's law. But we see that that sin and rebellion is something as well that uh, it doesn't have to be learned by people, right? How many parents here had to teach your children how to sin? Any one of you? No. Right? They, they grow up and uh, we find that it comes naturally to them to be Uh, to be selfish and to be disobedient. We don't teach them the word no, and they learn it. Okay? Uh, So again, we see that it's a problem that affects the human heart, and it's obvious uh, wherever we look, and it's exactly that which Scripture makes clear. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one to his own way. Or what Paul says in the book of, of Romans, Okay, Romans uh, chapter 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or even uh, Romans uh, 3.20, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, why comes knowledge of sin? And that's what we find here in Galatians 3.10 as well. Why is it that All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. It is because that none of us, not one of us, are able to keep the righteous requirements of the law of God. That's why. The problem isn't with the law. The law is righteous and holy and good. It's a beautiful reflection of the character of our holy God. The problem is with us, our enslavement to sin. And so the Bible teaches that we as lawbreakers are under the curse of Almighty God. What does that curse mean? Well, it means that we are under God's righteous wrath because of our sin. That God is a holy God. The law is a reflection of his character. God calls us to be his image bearers in this way. And yet we time and again fail to keep his law. And we are justly under his wrath and curse. We confess that together earlier out of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is it that every sin deserves? Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse. Both in this life and that which is to come. Now you'll notice that that's the truth of God during the New Testament period. We cannot be saved by the law because we are lawbreakers, but it is the truth of God in the Old Testament period as well. Isn't that interesting? In this passage in which Paul is speaking about our relation to the law, there are going to be four different quotations from the Old Testament. And Paul's point is, And his point is to the Judaizers, those whom he's doing battle with in Galatia, that it was the same in the Old Testament as it is now 
by our own obedience. We cannot be saved because we are disobedient, because we are sinners in his sight. We cannot rely on the works of the law. So what is the law's purpose and why is it given if you and I cannot be saved through keeping the law of God? Well, the law's purpose, dear friends, is to show us how bad we really are. That's what uh, Elder Andre earlier spoke of when he spoke of the first use of the law. That Remember he said that the law is like a mirror in which we see our own sin. Let me change the illustration a little bit. Children, you can think of this situation. If you were to be, if you were in a dark, damp cave, okay, and it was a cave where you couldn't see anything in front of you, and it was a cave that was full of bats and snakes and poisonous spiders, Okay, you like this illustration so far? Okay. If you're in such a cave, would you rather be in that cave without a flashlight or with a flashlight? Well, let me turn it around. If you didn't know how dangerous that cave was, would you rather have a flashlight or not have a flashlight? And the answer is you'd rather have one so that you could turn it on and you could look all around you and see this is not a place that I want to be. And you would leave immediately. You see, if you don't have that flashlight and you think, oh, this is, a, this is a pretty nice place to explore a little while. Let me just kind of walk around a little bit. And, you, and, and you'd be walking through danger the whole time. It would, be, it would be a terrible place to be if you didn't have a flashlight. You see, the, the light is good because it shows us the danger of that place. Well, dear friends, our hearts are like that cave. Our hearts are full of wickedness and danger because of its sin. And our hearts, if left unaddressed, will lead us straight to the place of death and damnation. And most of the world out there are like people who are walking in the cave of their own hearts without shining any light upon it. And they're happy and they're content. And they think life is going along just fine. All the while, their hearts are full of of danger that is leading them to death. Do you see the goodness of the law of God? What does the law of God do? Well, it is like that flashlight that we shine in our hearts and we see our law breaking. We see uh, just how wicked it is that we are. And, and, when we, and, and we see that when we, whenever we hear the preaching of the Word of God and we allow the Word of God to come to us and, and to expose our sin. Or when we read the Bible on our own and we become convicted over sin. Or when we have a Christian friend who approaches us and says, "Uh, dear brother or sister, don't you know that you shouldn't be living like that? You shouldn't be doing that. Well, what is that? That's the law of God exposing our sin. And friends, it's a good thing when the law exposes our sin. Because then seeing the, the, the desperate condition of our hearts, it causes us to flee, just like we would flee out of that cave, but to flee into the arms of Jesus Christ. So, friends, it is not by our own works, not by our own law-keeping, that any one of us can be saved. All who seek to be saved by their own deeds are under the curse of God. That's the teaching of the Bible, because we are sinners. 
Okay, the law exposes our sin. And then it points us now to that second way in which there is life and salvation to be found. And that's our second point now of our sermon. And it is the way of faith. The way of faith. So the law can't save us. The law exposes the sinfulness of our hearts. But there is this other way, the way of faith. And you'll notice in verse 11, uh, Uh, The Apostle Paul goes on to explain this. He says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. That's what we were just saying. For, and here again he quotes the Old Testament. This time Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. A passage that is also quoted in the first chapter of Romans. For the righteous shall live by faith. Now, in the original context in Habakkuk, Habakkuk's words condemned the pride of the Babylonians who conquered Jerusalem. The Babylonians were proud and self-righteous. And by contrast, he is saying, God's people are to be those who live trusting in God. That God's people are those who have been declared righteous, not on the basis of their own superiority, but rather through faith, in God. The righteous, he says, shall live by faith. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say that the law is not of faith. Rather, and here again he quotes the Old Testament, uh, Leviticus 18 in verses 4 and 5, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And so there are these two separate ways. With, if, we, if we are seeking salvation by the law, it's a matter of us doing. The one who does them shall live by them. But salvation by faith is a matter of receiving. Salvation by the law is a matter of us seeking our own uh, favor by our own obedience. Salvation by Faith is us receiving that gift which has been given us uh, by, uh, by God. And the danger of the Judaizers, and it's a danger today, dear friends, is that we would seek salvation through some combination of these two things. That we'd say, oh yes, we believe faith is important, but it's not just faith, it's also my faithfulness. It's also my works. But do you hear what this is saying? This is saying, no, that here we have two completely antithetical ways of being right with God. Either it's on the basis of what you have done by your works, or it is on the basis of what God has done, a free gift which we receive by faith. For the minute that you say in any sense it is due to our works that we are made right with God, that immediately, once again, you have that full requirement of the law, obedience in every part. So it's faith or law, the way of faith. And so, dear friends, we need to resist this temptation and to realize from the beginning of our Christian life to the end, that we as Christians are saved only 
by the work of Jesus Christ for us, which we receive by faith alone. We can't say, well, I begin with Jesus Christ, but then as I move on, well, I begin to think pretty well of the things that I have done and think, well, God surely is going to treat me well because of everything that I've done for Him and so forth, and we think that it's a matter of our works. No! The beginning of our lives, the middle of our Christian lives, the end of our Christian lives, our hope remains the same. It is all of faith. It is all of Christ. We need to be aware, dear friends, kind of the subtle ways in which sorts of forms of kind of works righteousness can kind of come into our lives. Let me just mention a few, I think, of the subtle ways in which this can happen. Sometimes, when tragedy strikes our lives, we are tempted to ask the question, how could God do this to me? There are a lot of pagans out there whom he should judge, but but not me. I've given up so much for his kingdom. I've taken my my children to church. I've I've been faithful to my spouse. I haven't been greedy for gain. Lord, why did this happen to me? You see what that is? That's a kind of subtle shift towards a self-righteousness. We want God to deal with us on the basis of our obedience. And instead, what should we be saying in a situation like that? Lord, what I deserve, based on my own righteousness, every moment is your wrath and curse. And yet I know you have saved me freely through Jesus Christ, and I stand in Christ. And so I know that even in the difficult things that come my way, you are dealing with me as a loving Heavenly Father to your fully accepted Son or daughter in Jesus Christ. That's how you approach it. You see that subtle shift to self-righteousness. Let me point out another way in which I think this subtly happens sometimes. Sometimes our self-righteousness reveals itself in how we want others to acknowledge and to appreciate our works. Can't so-and-so see everything that I do? Can't my aging parent appreciate all the sacrifices that I've made to take care of her? Or or my spouse or my child see the many ways that I have served him? Why don't my co-workers acknowledge how vital I am to this company? Why can't my teacher see what a good student I am? And we can kind of drive ourselves mad, continually seeking the approval of others by our own works. But friends, this also is a a form of self-righteousness. Because suddenly our thoughts go to what we have done. And just as we are tempted to seek approval with God, we also are tempted to seek approval with others on the basis of our works. But rather, dear friends, the the Christian says, no, I am accepted with God not on the basis of what I have done. I freely belong to Him through Jesus Christ. And that then frees me to serve others without the expectation of a return. I'm approved by God in Christ. I don't need to live and die by the approval of others because of my own works. Let me give a third subtle way that this kind of self-righteousness can come in. Sometimes our self-righteousness reveals itself in where we find our own sense of satisfaction and happiness and joy. We can look for satisfaction in what we have done 
in our achievement. How successful we have been in our career. How well we have parented our children. What grades we have made in school. How well we have achieved on the stage or on the athletic field. We are tempted, dear friends, to find happiness when we perform well. And that can become our focus of our lives, that I would be one who performs well. Similarly, on the flip side, we can get really anxious or really depressed when we fear that we have underachieved or we have let others down or let ourselves down. Well, again, dear friends, that is a subtle shift into a form of self-righteousness where we say what really matters is what I am doing. That's where my satisfaction is found. That's where my joy is found. But do you see in the gospel of Christ, it's the good news that we are fully accepted in what Christ has done. And so it frees us then for service. And should we seek to do well in our career or on the athletic field or in our grades? Absolutely. But not for our own satisfaction and joy, but for God and for his glory. Because we want our lives to be for Him always, not for ourselves. Okay? And so, dear friends, we have here this principle that the law is not a faith. We live by faith and not, not in the slightest bit seeking to earn favor or approval with God through our own works. The way of faith. Okay, there is a beautiful quote uh, by uh, by uh, Martin Luther. Let me just quote this uh, quickly here. Uh, Luther, who grasped this whole concept so wonderfully well at the time of the Reformation, explained God's true way of justifying sinners like this. Here he's, as it were, becoming the Luther's becoming the mouthpiece of God speaking to sinners, and he says. As the mouthpiece of God, if you, sinner, wish to placate me, God, do not offer me your works and merits, but believe in Jesus Christ, my only Son, who was born, who suffered, who was crucified, and who died for your sins, and then I will accept you and pronounce you righteous. That's the beauty of the gospel, dear friends. It is a faith from beginning to end. The beginning of our Christian life and all of the way through. In fact, each and every day from the moment that you wake up till the moment that you put your head on the pillow and a million times in between, we say we live solely by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Are we seeking to live that life of faith? Now let's move on thirdly though. Thirdly, here to redemption by the cross, okay? How is it, that is, that God accounts us righteous through faith and not by works? If, if, if the law is the reflection of His holy character and we are lawbreakers, how is it that we can be accounted righteous with God through faith? Well, it has everything, dear friends, to do with the object of our faith. And that's what we find in verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Uh, The word redeemed here is a kind of marketplace term. We still use it in that way. You might say, I redeem my coupon uh, for a, a, a certain thing to get a certain discount or a reduced price on an item. Okay. Well, in the first century, it was used as this kind of marketplace term, but it was also a, a, a term used to, uh, uh, to speak of the purchase price of a slave. And of course, that's how the Old Testament speaks of God's activity. When the Israelites themselves were slaves in Egypt, He redeemed them out of the land of Egypt from slavery. He paid the price in order to redeem them and deliver them. And so this language is used here that Christ redeemed us. That is, He set us free by the payment of a price from that curse of the law. And how was it that He set us free from the curse of the law that hangs over us? It was that He became a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's a quotation of Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23. And in the Old Testament, every, uh, under the Mosaic economy, every criminal, criminal who was executed, and usually they were executed by stoning, that then they had to uh, suffer their body, their dead corpse, being hung on a tree as it were, placarded before the Israelites as a symbol of divine rejection. So it was kind of a symbol of public humiliation and shame and of divine rejection as those who were lawbreakers. So that's what that verse refers to. And so you can imagine, dear friends, that when the Christian gospel began to be preached and it was a gospel of the Son of God who died hanging from a cross. You can imagine why that cross was so offensive to first century Jewish ears. You see, this is proof that he is not approved by God. That he himself is under the curse. Look how he died on this Roman cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And to that, Paul and these other early Christians say, Amen, indeed, our Savior is the one who was cursed. But He was cursed not for Himself, for He was righteous, but He was cursed for me and for my sake. You see, that's the key word in this passage. He became a curse. But a curse what? A curse for us. A curse for us. And let me just give another uh, just extraordinary Luther quote when it comes to this. This is a couple paragraphs, but listen carefully to what Luther says about this little phrase. Luther says that the whole emphasis is on the phrase, for us. For Christ is innocent so far as His own person is concerned. Therefore, he should not have been hanged from the tree. But because, according to the law, every thief should have been hanged, therefore, according to the law of Moses, Christ himself should have been hanged, for he bore the person of a sinner and of a thief. 
and not of one, but of all sinners and thieves, for we are sinners and thieves, and therefore we are worthy of death and eternal damnation. But Christ took all our sins upon Himself, and for them He died on the cross. Luther goes on to say, He is not acting in His own person now. Now, and this is Luther in his stretching, as it were, uh, the limits of as we try to understand, he says, now he is not the Son of God, born of the Virgin, but he is a sinner who has and bears the sin of Paul, the former blasphemer, persecutor, and assaulter, of Peter, who denied Christ, of David, who was an adulterer and a murderer, and who caused the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of the Lord, in short, he has and bears all the sins of all men in his body, not in the sense that he has committed them, but in the sense that he took these sins committed by us upon his own body in order to make satisfaction for them with his own blood. What a phrase this is. Because do you see what it's saying? That as soon as our sins, as it were, have been laid upon Jesus Christ, then yes, of course, Jesus goes to the cross and dies as one who is cursed of God, uttering those words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why is he hanging from that cross? It is because he is the great sin-bearer. It was for my blasphemy. It was for my disobedience. It was for my rebellion and impure thoughts and my covetous heart and my words which were not careful and the, my poor example that I set before my own children. And it was for my failure to remember His Sabbath day. And it was for my greediness and my love of the world. All of that hung upon Him as He died in my place. The curse borne by the sinless Son of God for me. And me, in that great exchange, justified, accounted righteous because of His perfect righteousness. Friends, that is the only reason in the world that you and I, who are by nature lawbreakers, are not under the curse. It is because of what Jesus has done. And so faith, dear friends, is the only way of salvation because it is faith which with that empty hand receives the whole Christ in all of the sufficiency of his work. You see, faith is not another work. But faith is that by which we receive Jesus in all of his sufficiency as our Savior, as the one who bore our curse. So that is why salvation must be not through a combination of faith and our works, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And this leads us then, dear friends, to the fourth and final point that I want us to see today. And that is Christ's crowning gift. Christ's crowning gift. Because then, through Jesus Christ, becoming the curse for us, suffering the curse of the law in our place as our substitute, 
Because Jesus Christ has done this, we then, now accounted righteous through faith in Christ, now become the recipient of the richest gospel blessings. Freely given to us. What are those gospel blessings? Well, we have a number of them listed in our passage. It speaks here of justification. Well, what is justification? Justification is being accounted righteous in the sight of God. So, through Christ, we are approved, accepted, forgiven in Christ. It's not only the blessing of justification, we also have the blessing of life. Did you notice that? Uh, Again, verse uh, 11, the righteous shall live by faith. And I think that that word there, live, really refers not just to physical existence, uh, but to life, eternal and to life abundant. By faith, we live, have true life. So it is for all who are in Jesus Christ. So we receive the blessings of justification. We receive the blessing of life. But then there's one other gift that's mentioned here that we receive. I believe this is the crowning gift of them all. You know, those of you who are parents here, one of the great delights that we have giving good gifts to our children. We love to give gifts that they like. Gifts that we know they're going to take pleasure in. And that are going to be for their good. We love to give good gifts. Well, friends, we love to give good gifts. How much more does our loving Savior love to give good gifts to those for whom He died? And what is the best gift that we receive from this loving Savior? It is that which we read of in verse 14. It was as a result of His substitutionary death that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive, there's the gift, that we might receive what? The promised Spirit through faith. That is the culminating, crowning gift of our crucified and resurrected Savior. The gift which fulfills that promise given to Abraham, that in Abraham all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What does it mean for them to be blessed In Abraham, it means that through Jesus Christ's work, you and I receive nothing less than God Himself dwelling in us, the blessed Holy Spirit, who comes and lives with us. God, not out there, but God in us. God, the Holy Spirit, giving us faith assuring us of God's love, enlightening our minds in His truth, conforming our will to God's will, reshaping our being after the image of Christ, comforting us amidst trials. These and so much more does this Holy Spirit do for us. And this Spirit is the one who will never leave us. And He will not even leave us as we pass through that final river, the river of death. But it is that same Spirit who will, as it were, usher us in to that very presence of our blessed Savior where we shall behold Him face to face. And it is that Spirit who will so still be united to our bodies that on that day of Christ's return, by the Spirit, those bodies will be raised and will become spiritual bodies. That is, bodies 
resurrected now to our fully redeemed, uh, joined once again to our fully redeemed souls that forever will be characterized by the blessed life of the Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the crowning gift of this new covenant that is ours, not through anything that we've done. Do you remember that beginning of Galatians 3? How did you receive the Spirit? Was it by the works of the law? Was it things that you did that secured the Spirit? And you see now how foolish it is for anybody to ever say, oh yeah, it was what I did that gave me this Holy Spirit. No, friends, how were we given the Holy Spirit? Well, it was through what Jesus Christ did. Received by faith. And we are given this precious gift now and forevermore. It's all of faith. It's all of grace. It's the beautiful gospel of our Lord Jesus. Let's believe it and live in it all of our days. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this amazing gospel. Salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. Lord Jesus, how can we thank you enough? for being that sin-bearer, suffering and dying as the cursed one for us so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. Lord, our God, grant that we would understand this and believe it and rejoice in it all of our days. And Lord, confirm this truth to us now as we come to this table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.